Hi, you've tuned into Indie Beat. My name is Christopher Jason Bell. I am your host. Here I talk to indie filmmakers and sometimes other indie film people, programmers and all that. Today we have Brandon Colvin who did the movies Frames and Sabbatical. So please tune in. Also, give us a like on Facebook, give us a nice review, and check out the other shows on the Playlist Podcast Network. Here is the interview. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. I'm here with my dear friend, filmmaker, and professor, Brandon Colvin. How are you, Brandon? I'm doing very well. How are you, Christopher? Doing it, you know? I'm just doing it. Yeah. (laughs) Um... So let's start off by finding out how you got into film. That goes back to when I was about 13. And uh, I had a friend who had an older brother. And his older brother and his older brother's friend were really into movies. And they showed a couple of us uh, 13-year-old punks this movie, Eraserhead, kind of as... A joke, may I think maybe they were like trying to like blow our minds in kind of a like sneering way, <laughs> but uh, it had the effect of absolutely um, awakening my interest in film as an art form. It was like seeing that movie was the first time I ever was conscious of the fact that a movie was a deliberate uh, expression of feeling. Uh, and that was, uh, like totally, uh, activated like a part of my existence that had not been activated yet. And I was like, man, I really want to get into this. And so like, I thought I was gonna make some stuff. And so I wrote some scripts in high school and then I was like, you know what? I don't really have the personality to like go get movies made. So internally, I kind of gave up on that idea for several years um, until I was in college. And then it kind of started to seem more approachable for a couple of reasons. One was like, was because of Mumblecore. And I realized like people were making movies for extremely small amounts of money, which seemed like you know, amounts of money I could conceptualize and not, like, bajillions of dollars like everything else. And so that kind of re reignited my interest in actually making stuff. And then I started writing again. Um, but, yeah, and then that kind of led to making my first film, Frames. And uh, you went to film school? No, actually... I've never what? taken a film production class in my life. What did you study? Um, I was a creative writing major, like an English creative writing emphasis major, and um, I did film studies as my minor because the university I went to, Western Kentucky University, didn't have a film major at that time. They do now, but they didn't then. And I was pretty disenchanted with what I heard about all their production classes at the time, which now, um, that's like a totally different story. They're much more improved than they, they were then. But then it was like, uh, I don't know. It was like a very like 
wasn't really they weren't really training people to make the kind of stuff I wanted to make, and so I just kind of didn't participate then. And so then when I was in grad school, I met um, a fellow grad student named Aaron Granite who had a lot of production experience, and he kind of assured me that we could make something, that like he knew enough and knew people who knew enough to make something. And so I had a script, and he was interested in it and said, like, let's do it. And so we did it. And then kind of only after we made that movie and in the process of making that movie did I really learn anything about production. So Frames was a good, uh, was your film school, pretty much. Yeah, Frames, and then um, because we made Frames... I got assigned to this teaching assistantship in um, production, which was pretty scary to me because I'd never really been involved in that. And in doing that for like two and a half years, that was really my film school. It was like I was learning stuff as I was learning how to teach it to people. And that was really, I feel like I learned a lot then. That was really like the time when, when film school style education happened for me. So you were on sets or something, or like exercises, film exercises? Yeah, a lot of like in-class shoots and learning equipment so we could teach it to people, and me being with the professor like one-on-one, and his name's Eric Gunnison, he's really great, but he was would you know be there to answer like every question I had about every technical thing, and that was like a process by which I came to have, like, a certain level of mastery over the technical apparatus and, like, you know, used editing programs for the first time and learned about frame rates and shutter speeds in a way that I wasn't super aware of when I made my first feature. Like, when I made my first feature, what I was bringing to the table was mostly... um knowing how to write something and I guess and thinking that I knew how to direct actors in a certain way and like having a a clear idea about something but I didn't really have any kind of nuts and bolts um know how that came that came later so let's talk a little bit about frames can you tell the audience what it's about and uh why you decided to do that story in particular it's about uh this high school kid who um, is kind of a loner and he has this weird friendship slash maybe budding romance with this other student and they kind of like do this movie project together. He's like this sort of pretentious, like super ambitious, pretentious little like, 16-year-old, and uh, while he and his friend are working on this project, she kind of, like, evaporates from his life. Like, she's, like, not around anymore, and he can't get a hold of her, and he doesn't know where she is. And so he, um, like, kind of becomes obsessed with her, uh, this what he perceives to be her disappearance, and develops and follows this conspiracy sort of theory he's built up based on 
some audiovisual evidence he's gathered and some other stuff that he's he's kind of cobbling together and starts to think that like maybe her father has some nefarious thing to do with why she's not available. And so he kind of like goes into this um totally narcissistic kind of like self-generated fantasy world that he kind of pushes to its limit and gets himself into some trouble. And in terms of why I wanted to make it, I mean, I think it was, well, it came out of this class that I had when I was an undergraduate in uh, college. And that class, the, the guy who taught it, it was like our capstone writing class. And he was really into like, starting projects by like forcing people to, to figure out how to combine, um, randomly selected elements. So we literally, it was like, okay, you have to write your capstone writing project and to do that. You're going to draw some shit out of a hat and you have to like make something out of it. <laughs> and so he, um, the things that he had us draw out of the hat, I drew, like, uh, it has to take place in a small town. It has to have a character who, um, like, uh, misperceives something. It has to have some kind of conflict between a character and their community. And then there was something that was, like, it has to involve some kind of uh, allusion to or be based on, like, Native American mythology. Um, and kind of underlining this actually was this idea that when we do this project, we should have some other artist who's, like, our creative model or mentor, and, like, we would write about the process of trying to, like, learn things from them and apply them to our work. And I was really into Antonioni at the time. And so I had Antonioni in my mind as like the person who would be the uh, creative model for this. So as I was forming it, I was like cobbling all this stuff together, like this random thing I drew out of a hat and this Antonioni stuff. And so it kind of became like a hodgepodge of like parts of Blow Up and parts of Leclise and parts of La Ventura blended into this stuff I drew out of a hat and this um, particular kind of mythology about uh, the coyote figure from, I think it was Navajo mythology is where it came from. So I was like reading all these things about coyote and about him like losing his vision at a certain point and having his like eyes replaced with like tree pitch and like misperceiving things. And, uh, so all that stuff was like swirling and mutating into a story, which is kind of where it all came from. And the obsession thing was, or his like obsession with her disappearance was I had had like a really weird, awful, break up from a weird relationship in college. And I remember there was this moment where like <laughs> this person was like lying to me about their whereabouts and it was like driving me nuts. Like I was just trying to like see her to talk to her about something. And so then I like walked by her apartment and like looked up into her window and like saw her and someone else in the window. And I was like, what the fuck am I doing? 
Like it made me feel like I was in a movie, like I was like Grace Kelly in Rear Window or something. Like I was like spying on someone. And the fact that I was doing that was like really shocking to me. And like that moment of like self-awareness as I was like so like riled up in this horrible relationship stuff and like so upset that I did this. I was like, oh my God, this, like, how did I let myself get here? And so, like, the idea of how someone could go even further than that, like, why would they do this? And, like, it felt like it was speaking to, like, a really, like, juvenile, weird, uh, like, part of myself. And so that, like, idea kind of informed the story and kind of why I wanted to tell the story. Oh, that's interesting. I never knew all that. Um, I, don't think, I don't think I've ever talked about it as thoroughly as that. Sorry, this is a super thorough answer. No, it's awesome. Wow. Um, see, and to go back a little bit that you kind of made a, you kind of conceived the idea under like guidelines or restrictions. And I feel like that's also part of like making a film oh, I want to make a film, well, use what you got. And I feel like that's still hard for people to kind of wrap their heads around. They don't like the limitations because they just want to, like, let their mind go. But, you know, then some of those people just never make anything. Do you usually work within those guidelines coming from, like, uh, you know, you're generally not working with a lot of money for your films? Are you trying to figure out, like, what you can have, what you have already and like how you can utilize that. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. And sometimes it, it comes in in different ways. Uh, I mean, I try not to choke ideas off too early because of worrying about budget or things like that, or like worrying about how I'm going to do it. Um, but most of the time, just the stuff I want to do is not very financially demanding in terms of, like, setting up a production. But I think also at this point, like, I know how to do a lot of stuff in a way that's uh, cost-effective. But I think the the part where um, I really think about practical limitations is when I'm kind of revising ideas. So, like, my when I write stuff... Um, I tend to just like collect images and notes and ideas and just collect and collect and collect until I think I almost have a finished kind of story. And then I go through my notes, which are handwritten, and then I type them out in chronological order of the story. And then I kind of look at this chronological note list and figure out like where gaps are in the story or where like things need to connect where they're not connecting or where there's like a missing scene or things like that and then I kind of fill out those notes and so at that point it's like in a pre-script outline sort of and when I'm turning things from the outline into the script is usually when I start to think like okay how would I actually shoot that is this something we can pull off do I need to think about like if I have a location in mind that I could use is this going to be hard location wise etc 
and and so that's when that kind of practical consideration happens. But in terms of um, restrictions, usually, I mean, after frames happened, and this kind of sort of happened with frames too. It was like as I'm writing stuff, like things come. It's like a very kind of image-based process. And so I kind of start to get compositions and colors and movement and things like that for the story as the story is coming to me. And typically just like the way it starts coming to me is sets like the rules or like sets the guidelines for what I'm going to be making. So I kind of figure it out um, inductively almost. So, like, as as the ideas are developing, they kind of are, at the same time, like, dictating the terms of the creative project, if that makes sense. Mm. Okay. It's, like, the first, oh. the first couple of ideas or the first images that, like, stick and, like, glom on to this uh, gravitational force of, like, an idea... Like the first ones that really feel like, yeah, that's that's part of this movie. That idea is in this movie. Those things kind of become, um, like uh, the arbiters of like which ideas continue to belong with those other ideas. So like if it, if they feel of a piece or if it makes sense, then they kind of uh, become part of like the 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 formal system that's kind of like governing how the story is going to work. Can you talk a little bit about the release of Frames? Because that's a pretty interesting story. And um, I want to know what the what the year was. Since I, That's how I found you, but I cannot remember like when it was. I think it was 2015. But So we shot Frames in 2011. It played a few festivals in 2012. And then in 2013... A few months before we were going to uh, like go into prep for sabbatical, I was like talking to Tony Oswald, my um, producing partner and editor and all around best bud, and um, I was like, uh, "We need more people to see this movie." Like, what? It feels. It felt like we played at a few festivals. There were other festivals, which this kind of became like a recurring theme in my life for my first two films, where we would get rejected and like a programmer would contact me and be like, listen, two of us loved it and the other two hated it. And then so we didn't program it, but, you know, I really liked your movie and good work and et cetera, et cetera. And so there was like this like dangling dissatisfaction with the life of the movie at that point. And so I told Tony, like, we should just put it on the internet for free and, like, figure out what the best way to do that is. And he knew about No Budge. And so he was like, you should submit it to this place. And I was like, uh, okay. And I didn't know... Um, Kentucker Oddly, who runs No Budge, I didn't know him at all. I just like sent him the movie and was like, "Well, this is our last uh, 
you know, attempt to really kind of get this in front of people. Otherwise, we're just going to, like, dump it online and see what happens. And luckily, Kentucker decided to show it on the site. And then it was, like, a lot of people, uh, a lot of other filmmakers saw it there. And a lot of other people saw it there. And it felt like it finally got to people who understood what I was trying to do. Um, And that was, like, very relieving and rewarding. Like, it was, like, uh, it was confusing to me because I thought people were going to get what I was trying to do. And then it felt like people didn't, and then finally they did. And that was really exciting and really kind of, like, charged us up going into the next film um and enabled me to meet a lot of other filmmakers and gave me like an entry point to like starting conversations with people who I didn't know really like I could say oh yeah my thing's on no budge blah 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 and then it was like we had something to talk about or there was something to latch on to or something like that it was just like a way of um giving the movie legs in a way that it didn't really have. And then from there, um, something even weirder happened, which is, uh, so like through no budget it was on YouTube. And then, uh, I realized months, months, uh, maybe even years after it was on YouTube and maybe Kentucker told me this, but he was like, yeah, the movie, your movie's got, like, a bunch of views on YouTube. And I think it's because it has nudity in it is the, re- is the reason why that happened. But uh, now it's got, like, 3 million views on YouTube, and somebody in India saw it and, like, remade the movie, like a feature-length remake of my little first movie that I wrote when I was, like, 21 and uh it was pretty insane that that happened and that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of like the the final phase in that movie's life i'm not even sure what that movie's doing now i mean people still watch it on youtube but getting remade in india was like uh really the the kind of strange terminal of that whole process i was so excited when i heard that it's such a strange, awesome thing that I'm like, I don't know. It's always so nice to see like friends and, and people who make stuff that you admire, like go to these like new plateaus. Cause you all, you know, you often hear about like jealousy or like I can complain and vent and stuff like that. But when you, when you see that, that's usually a really great feeling. And I never in a million years thought, like, yeah, one of my friend's movies is going to get remade in another country. It's, like, so wild. I can't even imagine how you must feel. It's such a cool thing. It's a super unique thing. I don't know if it's really happened to anyone else who comes from the same, like, weird part of the filmmaking landscape to, like, have a little movie like that get remade. It's, like, so bizarre. And, uh, it was also, like, it happened, like, last year. I think, like, in January of 2017 is when they released it, so maybe they shot it in 2016. 
But that was like years after we made that movie. And so even like it was even weirder because it was kind of like a movie that I had moved on from. Like it's something I still am proud of, but I'm like far away from the person who made that movie. And so it's like even weirder for it to get like brought back into my consciousness in that very strange way. But I'm glad people are still connecting with it in some way. I mean, that's like, ultimately that's what you always want to want to happen is like somebody really connects to your work in a strong way. And for someone, you know, across the world to connect with something and want to like spend the time to remake it is pretty wild. Yeah. I think we get caught up on making a movie and then it has to play like, festivals are really good festivals and you know it's got to get distribution and stuff and look all that's really nice but um when you kind of go down like the 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 chain of like all right so this many people make a movie then you go down this many people have a premiere at like a couple of really good festivals then it goes down this person gets distribution that's really good or that's decent then it goes down. This person, like, gets on a few end-of-the-year lists and then goes even more down, like, they talk about it, like, a year or two after. So it's, like, it really diminishes. It's really hard to, like, get that, you know, all that stuff. But I think Frames is a good example of, like, the different ways it can go because, you know, how many of those, like, hot, cool indie movies that, honestly, nobody talks about or nobody remembers anymore, got remade in another country, you know, and have, like, three million viewers. So there's all these different, you know, I I just wouldn't count out anything at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's also a function of, like, we, both of my first features are on the internet for free and have been for a long time. Mm -hmm. And... People see them more often than they do if your movie is, like, sitting on some, uh, you know, VOD service. Uh, Like, people just watch these things. Like, still, people watch these. And um, sometimes it's like people hear about your movie and then they'll be reminded of it by something, like, a year later and watch it. And, like, who knows if they had to pay, like, Four ninety nine. If that, if they would still make the decision to watch it in that moment in the same way, so there. I mean, I think putting stuff on the internet for free. I mean, it was a decision that we made with both of these films at a certain point. When I mean, for frames, that was like kind of how it entered the world. With sabbatical, we had um, a short VOD window, and we put it out on Blu-ray. And after a while, you know, once people weren't really buying those anymore, it was like, listen, this movie is never going to have, like, more juice or energy pumped into it or whatever at any other time. Like, we've made our big push. And so, like, at this point, we should just make it free so people watch it. Because, you know, I think it's a lot easier for people to find it and watch it in the in the fashion that it's available now than in any other way. And ultimately that's more important to me as a filmmaker is that people see it and uh 
I mean, it's something I think about a lot. You're kind of talking about um, the very, the ways, like, the markers of success that we have as filmmakers mm-hmm. um, mean that for, like, full-blown success, like, very few people check all of the boxes you just listed. And so if you know that the odds are stacked against you, especially if you don't have, like, like known actors in your work where you don't um, tickle the programmer's fancy at, uh, like, a really big kind of name-making festival, then you're just not going to end up there. And so if that's the, like, barometer by which you're gauging your value as a filmmaker or your film's value as a film, like, it's just going to be a lot of people who are really disappointed in themselves. Um, But, like... It's so crazy because it feels like all that stuff is like a step removed from the ultimate goal, which is to connect with an audience and have people see and respond to your work. And like, you know, I mean, with both of my films, I've had people tell me like, you know, this movie changed the way I thought about this thing in my life or this movie you know, helped me think about this experience in my life. And at that point, like, you've made something that has really touched and impacted another human being and, you know, in a way that they might carry with them for weeks or years or whatever. And when you've done that, it's like, isn't that what we're trying to do? Is, like, do that thing. And there are very few art forms aside from film, partially because it's so resource-intensive and so financially onerous to produce. But there are very few art forms where, like, if someone makes a work of art, they feel like a failure unless it, like, checks all these very specific boxes in this, like, tiered hierarchy of success. It's like poets don't aren't like, well, I didn't get into Sundance, so I'm going to quit writing poems or something. But I feel like that's part of what happens with filmmakers is people just like decide it's not worth it. But to me, it's just, it's a life choice, like making films. It's not really like a negotiable part of my life. It's just what I'm going to do. And so whether or not a film makes me feel like I'm like climbing a ladder or uh, doing something in that way, uh, I still got to make them and I got to make them for the, the reasons I was talking about. We were talking about, uh, goals as a filmmaker and what I'm doing now is like, I'm doing a lot of short films, like a couple a year, a lot of the time. And to me, it's just like, that is the art that I'm in. You know, it's like making a painting, like I have ideas for shorts and they come together and I can do them and they're not expensive. Obviously I want people to see them, but it's more just like, this is what I want to do. This is my, like an expression. I'm coming to see that a lot of my peers don't see it like that. They don't see filmmaking like that. And I'd love to get a job one day. If you or I were like hired to write something or direct something, weirder things have happened. Weirder people have gotten money 
out of this business. And I, I can't speak for you. Like I wouldn't oppose it. I'm just kind of making stuff I want to do and needs to be out there. Um, I'm not necessarily looking to be like, this one's going to be really popular because like, who knows that? Especially on our level. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, um, I don't have that much control over what is coming out at certain times out of my creative, you know, whatever. But sometimes, like, I know when I was working on sabbatical, I was like, this movie is going to be tough for a lot of people. With the new one, um, A Dim Valley, I think uh, the idea has more, like, it's more accessible in certain ways. It's It's in a lot of ways more adventurous and strange than either of my previous films but I think it also has like more um like emotional endpoints for people I don't know if that'll actually translate into anything but uh yeah I think um it's really hard for me to think about my creative output in a strategic way like it, I can't, uh, like to me, like the strategy is like whatever thing is coming out of me that I have to make, I have to figure out how to make that. It's not like, how do I figure out how to make something that's going to connect with people or that's going to fulfill these particular functions or look good in this particular way. It's just what I have to do and I have to figure out how to do it the best I can. And it is an, exp- an expression, uh, I think I would probably make short films, except I think I'm bad at coming up with short film ideas. Like, I don't think my, um, I don't think my brain or heart or whatever, uh, is just naturally inclined to do it. I can help other people with their shorts, but like, I just never think of an idea that seems suited to that size. I hope in the future that will change, but, um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I um, I mean, you're saying if someone offered you a job to work on something, would you do it? I don't know if I would. Just, I'm, it depends on the level of freedom that I have because, like, I'm not naturally extroverted or, like, super... I don't have the kind of energy that like certain people do where it's like they just love being on a film set and it's like what they want to do with all of their time. It's actually like extremely taxing to me and requires like a lot of effort for me to make it through a shoot. Like because it's very um it really like goes against the grain of my normal rhythms and personality and everything like that. And so it it seems really hard for me to expend that kind of energy on something that wasn't like coming straight from my heart in a way or that I wasn't super personally invested in. So, I mean, I would try it. I just think I would maybe fail at it because I wouldn't be able to commit in the same way. Yeah, I would, I don't know how good at it I would be, but, um, it would, if anything, be interesting to try and see what I could learn from it. It's also, I mean, That idea, that, like, knowledge, or what I think is knowledge, maybe I'm wrong, but um, knowledge about myself and my own proclivities is one reason why 
making films in in academia is like the ecosystem that works best for me because then I'm not having to figure out a way to like make money in the filmmaking industry because my living is coming from teaching. And so that makes more sense to me because I don't think I would be very good at um, trying to make movie stuff or anything adjacent to movies uh, for money, like as my job. I think I would like kind of crumble in that situation. I feel like we were talking about getting money for movies and I have no idea how to do that. Um, I pretty much self-funded everything and I did a Kickstarter for like post for my feature. And I know you've done a Kickstarter and you will do another Kickstarter, but yeah, how do we, I don't know how to get money for movies. I don't know how to go about doing it. I feel bad asking. Um, Kickstarter was fine. Cause at least I'm like doing it all digitally sending people like messages and stuff. And if someone makes me feel bad, it's like, oh, it's, uh, I'll just close this. Um, <laughs> but I don't know how to do it. And I'm, I'm thinking, like, I feel like if you show somebody that Frames got 3 million views, they, you know, might be convinced that they should give you money. Yeah, that's my thought, too. <laughs> uh, I think the thing is, is, like, I just, I don't um, know... People, I don't know, have relationships with, like, investors or even really with that many filmmakers who do have relationships with investors. And so, I mean, for me, it's like this project had to happen this summer just because of a couple of timing things. And um, I also kind of felt like if I waited any longer, like, I might lose my... Uh, bond with it in a certain way because I've been writing and prepping this thing for a long time and it just felt like everything had reached the maturation point where it needed to happen there was a time when I was thinking like we should reach out to investors and we like prepped uh, you know investor pitch packages and all these kinds of things to like get stuff ready and then ultimately it was just like I felt like I kind of ran out of time and I didn't really have the time to like uh, build up to it. But I feel like I did like a test run for like preparing to do it. And so, yeah, that's about where I am. I mean, I don't, I think it's one of those things where being someone who doesn't live in LA or New York or places where there's like, money for movie and ways movies and ways to get to know the people who have the money for movies. I just don't have the same relationships that some people might have. And, um, you know, my relationships are more with people for who, for whom crowdfunding makes more sense. Like, I feel like I know a lot of people who know and value my work and the work of my collaborators. And those people want to, help like they want to be a part of the movie i mean i think that's sometimes something that's really tricky about the crowdfund like the attitude about crowdfunding is like at a certain point it's like you feel guilty because you're like begging people for money but i think the other thing that you have to be aware of 
and sometimes this is like harder to be aware of when you know a lot of filmmakers interact with a lot of filmmakers is that most of the population and most people who are going to watch your movie um, are not filmmakers and it's like actually pretty fun and exciting to be involved in the production of a movie you know in any kind of way I mean I know when I kickstart people's stuff I'm like excited to hear about it and like you know the new movie by Lev Kalman and Whit Horn Two Planes and a Fancy like I love their movie L for Leisure and you know, hearing that it's premiering and, like, watching it and waiting for it, like, rubbing my hands together, like, ooh, I can't wait to see this. You know, like, being part of that is actually a fun thing to do. And as a filmmaker who has a project that's doing this, it's like you are providing something that people want and that they enjoy. And it's not nece- it's not always, like, you should feel like you're just, like, annoying people. I mean, some people might find it annoying, but a lot of other people are actually going to enjoy, you know, coming along the ride with you. So that, I mean, that's at least what I think about when I am trying to like overcome my pangs of guilt about asking people for money is that like, you know, people who helped kickstart sabbatical are like excited to help kickstart this movie. Like I've talked to some of them and they're like, yeah, let's do it. I can't wait. You know, and so, you know, that's what I try to latch on to, to make it make sense to me. And hopefully, I mean, my my goal is this is the last time I'll ever have to crowdfund anything. Uh, partially because I'm no longer going to be a pretty deeply impoverished graduate student. I'm going to have like an actual salary as a professor which is going to mean that there are certain things I'll be able to take care of financially on the films that I wasn't able to in previous stuff. So, uh, yeah, those, those are my thoughts on crowdfunding. Um, we've gotten pretty deep, and I feel like we should talk about the new film, finally. It's called The Dim Valley, and you will be doing a Kickstarter for it, and we will tell people where to find that in the article and at the end of the show, but can you give us a pitch, the story for A Dim Valley? It's about uh, these two ecology graduate students and their professor, and uh, they're, like, all together doing this, um, like, field research, sort of like a, a ecological survey of, like, a certain area to, like, test for, like, biodiversity and what's in the what's in the area but the thing is is like none of them know each other all that well and so the first part of the story is kind of about these three people interacting and forming relationships uh you know some of which are very uh or at times are very dysfunctional and in some ways they kind of form bonds that are really um interesting and I don't want to spoil anything about them but um their bonds become uh uh much more relevant later in the film which uh is takes kind of after their relationships form they interact with these people who are uh at first seem just like you know crunchy backpacker types and uh but then like a series of kind of strange occurrences with these people result in 
um, them like entering the lives of the scientists and kind of transforming them in pretty uh, weird ways and with like some kind of like mystical overtones. And eventually it kind of like uh, it twists away from being a comedy into this kind of like um, almost like melancholy kind of story about like love and mentorship and identity and things like that. So it involves the marriage between science and spirituality. I think maybe there's like a link between them, which is like devotion. Like, I think it's about, in some ways it's about devotion Like that, um, a scientist who really loves nature, uh, is almost like doing a kind of spiritual practice. And that's part of it is like when you're able to be fascinated by and curious about the most minute, you know, lichens on a rock and like see the beauty in them, like, it's, it's a scientific approach, but to me, it's also like a profoundly, um, like emotional and spiritual way of engaging with the world. And so there's a kind of link there. There's a kind of like, um, there's a way that like, uh, the kind of curiosity that drives, um, at least one of the characters in the film, uh, functions as a kind of like meditation or something that gives these these scientists kind of access to um, like a, the more metaphysical side of the natural world they're they're kind of um, trying to understand. How do you feel, if at all, is this project different from your first two movies? The first two movies were very much like, in terms of their tone, I was thinking of them like, an album that you put on like an ambient album or something like it's an album that has like a consistent tone and a consistent feeling and you listen to it for 45 minutes and while you're listening to it you kind of take on that feeling and it like suffuses you and you get like a really deep experience of this particular kind of feeling and so this one on the other hand there's like more of a range of tones And there's kind of, like, a trajectory of feeling. So, like, it's still moody. I don't know if I can make a movie that isn't, like, super moody um, and super tonal. But um, this one, there's, like, more of... um, There's more kind of tonal diversity. And there's more of a kind of um, shape of change in the way things feel. And I think there's also... There is, like a lot more uh, narrative, more narrative events. Like uh, the previous ones, they're kind of like stripped down as much as possible in a lot of ways. And this is also pretty focused, um, but kind of like more stuff happens, um, which, and there are more characters. So it's maybe just like a little, it's a little more opened out and like less, um, 
kind of like super tonally focused on like one main character. They're kind of like more central characters who kind of have uh, more involved kind of emotional arcs. What movies or directors are you pulling from for this one? A big one for me was is um, Hayao Miyazaki and specifically the way he handles his creation of fantasy worlds. And there's something about his movies that often makes me really deeply emotional, which is they end in ways that where it's like it ends and I'm like, I wish that's how it was. And then I feel really sad because that's not how it is. It's like he imagines a world that's better than our world and has some kind of where there's some kind of greater significance to the way things work. And there's some sense of like benevolence involved in the operations of this world. You know, whether it's like the end of Castle in the Sky or Porco Rosso or, you know, whatever. There's always some kind of like, there's always some kind of thing that gives me this like particular twinge of like really like rapturous pleasure with like sadness when I compare it to how reality is and it like his movies like activate a certain kind of impulse I have like almost a religious impulse or something where like they give me that comfort of feeling like the world makes sense and so that was like a feeling I wanted to establish in this movie like I wanted to have the sense that there's something in the world of this story, like there is some kind of benevolent presence in the world that like operates according to some sense of like justice or fairness or, you know, there's some kind of like positive intervention from the universe in the lives of the characters. Uh, And that's like, I mean, it's a very old-fashioned idea that Miyazaki does well, but it's like his his particular application of it kind of made me want to do this, and um, so that's part. So that's like super influential in that way. And then um, I think a huge thing for me was actually uh, when I learned that there was going to be Twin Peaks: The Return. I rewatched all of Twin Peaks like a long time before, like a year before the return came out. And while I was watching it, I was just reminded that you can do anything. Like anything can happen in a story and you can just make it up. And like, you know, David Lynch does stuff where he's just letting feeling dictate giant narrative things or he's burrowing really deeply into a character's subjectivity and lets it just, like, bleed into the objective story world and, like, become a thing. And he just does stuff, and he does stuff, and because it feels right, you just follow it. And that it that was, like, a guiding light in a lot of ways when I was writing. It's just, like, remembering that anything can happen. And I'm allowed to do anything I want. 
And if something feels good, then I should just do it and and worry about how to make it make sense later. Mm. And that was, I really loved that, that uh, kind of having that feeling. And this was a particular story that kind of allowed me to exercise that in a way that my previous two films were like a little more governed. You know, I mean, they take place in in something that's only slightly different than reality. Like, there's a emotional focus and emotional heightenedness there that makes it stylized, and there's a way people behave and interact that's kind of stylized. But it's mostly, like, circumscribed by the nature of reality. And here, because this story had supernatural kind of components I was able to just let things go however they felt and that was really exciting and like left me kind of being deeply uh amused and kind of fascinated by the ways things were unfolding as I was writing man we could talk about Twin Peaks for another (laughs) hour but uh we're approaching an hour mark, so I wanted to talk about a little more about filmmaking and academia because I remember wanting to teach. That's what I wanted my job to be, and I would I would make films similar to how you will be doing. But uh, I was like, I can't afford grad school. I'm not going to do like student loans again. And then I had like a guest lecture. I showed my feature at um at the school I went to. It was mostly okay, but man, the freshmen were tough. And I didn't realize, I was like, I think I was 28 at the time. And uh, I was like, man, I'm not so far removed from college. And it's like, I saw them and they were just like tiny babies. It was like, man, I got 10 years on them. It really, that really shocked me. I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm old. And um, I don't know, I guess maybe if I had more practice and if I was like a bit more um I think I've grown more patient since then but uh I had a lot of trouble initially at least I guess getting on their wavelength and them getting on my wavelength and uh I wasn't really sure how to do it I don't know so like what's your experience teaching well I kind of I came at it from um a different direction than most people who make films. I think most people who make films and are interested in academia get MFAs. And so if you get an MFA, you're pretty much always like paying for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I got a PhD, an MA and a PhD, uh, which means you have to do real like hardcore scholarship um, kind of stuff. Uh, But the other thing that means is, most schools, if you're getting a PhD there, you don't pay tuition. You get full tuition remission. And a lot of schools, they start you doing a teaching assistantship or some other kind of assistantship where you're actually getting paid to work usually like 20 hours a week or maybe uh, more or less depending on the situation. So my experience was I got in, started grad school when I was 22, and I immediately started teaching at the college level. And now I'm about to turn 30, so I've been teaching at the college level for about eight years, which is a lot of practice uh, kind of before you leave grad school. The other thing is MFAs usually take 
two to three years. And going, getting your master's and PhD, um, I mean, the absolute fastest you can do it is like six, but it's somewhere between six and 10 is how long it takes to do that. And you get a lot of experience and a lot of, um, you become really familiarized with the way academia works. Uh, and you have a PhD, which means you can do some things that MFAs can't always do, or you might appeal to institutions uh, who want to get more people who can teach, you know, film studies classes in addition to production classes, or maybe they just want more PhDs in their program for a variety of reasons. Um, and that can be really beneficial. And the other thing is that something that's helped me as a filmmaker a lot is like teaching people production all the time means that there are certain things that I stay super sharp on. So even if I'm not making films all the time, I'm helping people make films all the time. And so there's all kinds of problem-solving stuff that because I'm helping students do it, I'm kind of like flexing certain muscles that keep me sharp. And, uh, you know, they're always like asking me to help them solve problems that I haven't encountered yet. And so... I learn new stuff. I learn how to solve that kind of problem. Or, um, you know, it forces me to learn software and equipment in ways that are super, super thorough because I have to be able to answer everybody's questions about them when I'm actually teaching them. So uh, there are a lot of ways in which teaching regularly um, means that, like, this stuff just stays fresh and... Uh, I really value that. And the other thing is that if you're in a tenure track position, which I'm going to be starting in, you have to get tenure. And if you're doing production, part of your tenure is making stuff, making work that gets, you know, programmed or gets shown around. And so you then have this like outside force that's kind of like making you produce things or that's saying like, you know, you got six years to get tenure you need to be producing stuff. And so you have this like apparatus that's like encouraging you to make films um, that I think is also kind of helpful to have. I'd, I guess I would still like to teach in some capacity, but I don't know if it would be in academia. I was wondering maybe um, I'd start like a, like a local community-based class or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you could still do it. I mean, the other thing is just, um, I think uh, it's it's competitive a lot of times to get those kinds of jobs, especially if you're in New York or L.A. where there are lots of other filmmakers who are trying to supplement their income with uh, teaching. Mm. But especially if you have a lot of experience and you're okay with not living in New York or L.A., uh, there's a lot of stuff you can do. I mean, most of the time you have to have a terminal degree, so you have to either have an MFA or a PhD to get those jobs. But for me as a filmmaker, it's the lifestyle that makes sense for the kind of career I want to have. Like, I'm not trying to, um, like, direct episodes of The Walking Dead or, or something like that. I'm trying to make my own stuff, and um, this is, like the best the best path for me and i think uh, you know i wish there was a way to educate 
other filmmakers about how this whole process works because I feel like it's kind of mystified for people who are on the outside of it. And I think it's like, it's becoming increasingly possible to live in different parts of the country and still make like consistent, interesting work. Uh, and so it, I think it's like people should think more like about the academic option as a career path and not just think like, Oh, I've got to move to one of the coastal cities to get a career, you know, even adjacent to the film industry. I mean, you have a lot of people who like know what they're talking about, think they know what they're talking about or like have just heard this so many times. So they think that's the case that you need to be in New York and or LA to make movies. And you know, what does that actually mean? It means just like basically being in an overcrowded city that you can't afford in hopes that something happens, you know, it has nothing to do with making a movie. You know, I've been in New York, but uh, you are one of my closer filmmaking friends and you're not here. You know, I met you via the internet, like, because of No Budge. Um, and I have a lot of friends like that, and then a lot of them happen to live in New York, but that's not necessarily true. So, um, and I think that you are making some of the more interesting work in the independent world, like the micro-budget world. Um, and you're not in New York, and it's kind of like, what? what's the reason to be here? Like, unless you really like it then, okay, that's fine. But, like, you really don't need to do that. And you don't have to be embarrassed because you're not close to those, like, random parts of the country. I mean, I'm about to... I, I recently checked this, but I'm about to move to Little Rock, Arkansas. And um, the, like, cost of living comparison for Little Rock versus Brooklyn, like, Brooklyn is, like, twice as expensive like, I would have to make double my salary to live the equivalent lifestyle in Brooklyn, which is, like, kind of staggering to me. Uh, yeah. And, I mean, the other thing with me is, like, there are always going to be people, you know, who live in New York. And they can be part of your, you know, filmmaking kind of group. Like, my, my best friend Tony lives in New York, and almost every benefit of being in New York that we would have, that I would have as a filmmaker, like, I can get partially through him or through other friends who live in New York. I mean, the benefits are you make relationships with people, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, they're there. They can make those relationships. I also make those relationships, like, remotely just through the Internet. It's so easy, I think, to kind of form relationships with people now, um, being outside of those major hubs. And I just feel like more people should do it. Like, I wish they would just take the leap and, like, you know, move to, like, Bloomington, Indiana and, like, be a filmmaker there. Or, like, move to, I don't know, Montana and, like, make some movies. Because it feels like... It feels like that's going to happen at some point more than it already is. And I'm just kind of like excited for the movies that are going to come out of that. Yeah. It's hard to like pick up and move. Like I was just born here. Like, you know, so all of my, right, right. Yeah. All my connections and roots are here, but I do see it in the future, you know, like 
I don't necessarily need to be here aside from like friends and family, but because of the internet, like, you know, I probably know someone everywhere, like at least one person who's not like an asshole. And it would be cooler to like live cheaper and be able to work cheaper on on films and stuff like that. Again, we're talking like the bullshit like rules and stuff like that but there is a sense that like if you're not from New York or LA or something like that then it's like you're the films are like local dinky like film productions that are like embarrassing or you know all these different things which is like yeah those movies exist but um there's definitely cool stuff that we just don't know about and I guess it's up to us to find it. It's not just up to us to find it. I mean, the other thing is, like, a lot of people move to these places who aren't from these places, but the alternative is, like, build something where you are. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, the challenge, it's like an, uh, a chicken-egg thing where it's like, well, I moved to New York or L.A. because there's no film culture in Ohio. And it's like, okay, well, if you're, like, this filmmaker, cinephile, whatever... Like, start building film culture in Ohio, and then it'll be there. And I feel like eventually more people are going to have to kind of, like, take on that responsibility to, like, you know, I mean, there's art culture in all of these states. So, like, why isn't there a film culture? Why can't we, like, build it up and make it more of a thing? And, you know, it can happen quickly uh, in different, you know, different places have kind of, like, like, I mean, Austin is, like, a great example of that, a place that, you know, for any shortcomings or problems there might be with Austin, it's, like, it built a filmmaking culture, uh, partially because of things like the Austin Film Society and people who were just, like, obsessed with trying to make it something that you could do in that place. And I think there are lots of other places where things like that there's like a potential for things like that to happen. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was doing, um, for a long time screenings in New York and, uh, I still, I, I played a lot of stuff that didn't get a screening in New York, which I do think is important, but also it's just like, there are like new movie theaters opening almost every year with just like week long programming. And you add like other places that are showing films. It's just like, and it's New York, so there's so much to do. And I think these movies should be played, but like maybe time is better spent making a place for people to see stuff in a different area, New Jersey or upstate New York or something like that, which is like close to the city, but like they're not awash with a ton of other like movie going opportunities. I mean, that's the other thing is like, I think when you're you are like a micro-budget independent filmmaker, it's hard to remember how many people are out there who actually would be interested in the kind of films you're making, but they literally don't know they exist or how they could possibly see them. Mm -hmm. And so it's like there's a disconnect, I think, between the people who would be interested in this kind of thing and the people who have like the access or awareness of this kind of thing. And the only way we bridge that gap is by, like, trying to increase access and awareness to these kinds of movies 
in places uh, where people don't normally sort of come into contact with that kind of film culture. Well, that's a good place to wrap it up, I believe. Um, is there anything that you wanted to talk about before we left that we didn't get to? That feels like a very satisfying conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, so you have produced or at least helped out um, two short films that I know of, one by Tony and one by Nora. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So how can people check those out? And I've seen them both, and they're both incredible. But how can people check those out? Or, like, what's uh-huh. up with them? Yeah, Nora Stone's movie, uh, Mommy Moments, is actually going to be playing... Uh, it's going to debut online as part of Film Pulse Selects in the next couple of weeks. Mm. Uh, so you'll be able to see that there. And then um, Tony Oswald's movie, Great Light, is still playing festivals right now. But... Word on the street is, uh, as part of our Kickstarter campaign, you might have an opportunity to take a look at it early if you uh, contribute. So keep on the lookout for that. Otherwise, you know, catch it at a festival near you. By the time this airs, the Kickstarter will be live. How do people find out about it? How do they access it? So if you search Adem Valley on Kickstarter, you'll be able to find it. If you go to adimvalley.com, the homepage will direct you straight to it. If you follow me on Twitter or friend me on Facebook, whatever, you'll be able to hear all about uh, sort of what's going on with the campaign and and uh, hear any cool updates about uh, developments that are happening during the campaign. Well, Brandon, it's been real, and thank you for everything you've done for the film community and you're awesome thanks man you're awesome too <laughs> come on <laughs> um, but yeah this has been a long time coming thanks for coming on and um, I really can't wait to see a dim valley yeah I can't wait to show it to you <laughs> alright hell yeah alright peace <laughs>